0: today we got the numbers on the trade deficit for the month of july this is the unified trade deficit that combines both the deficit that we have in goods with the surplus that we have in services and the expectation was for 50.2 billion Deficit, which is a very big number, and we didn't quite hit that. We got 50.1, but it was a big jump over the prior month, which was actually revised uh, to a smaller deficit than the one that was originally reported at 46.3. They revised it to 45.7, but that means that the increase between June and July was, what, 9.6% increase in, In the deficit, that was the largest monthly jump since sometime back in 2015. So about three years since we've had that big a jump in one month in the trade deficit. In fact, the trade deficit is on par right now to be the biggest trade deficit in 10 years. And of course, the last time we had a trade deficit this big was 2008, which, of course, was right before the financial crisis and Great Recession. And it probably is no coincidence that we're having such large trade deficits again, probably on the eve of what will be an even greater economic recession than the one that we had in 2008. But you know what I want to talk about is the coverage that CNBC was giving all day to the trade numbers. And of course, it is a politically charged number because if you look at our trade deficits with both Europe and uh, China, they were both at records. And of course, the Chinese deficit being much bigger uh, than the European deficit, but both deficits this month were the largest that they've ever been. And you know, Steve Leisman, who is the uh, senior economist, I guess, chief economist at CNBC, I don't even know how many economists they have there. I mean, he's the only one I ever see. But anyway, he's got some kind of fancy title. But he basically knows nothing about economics, uh, which really means he's perfectly qualified to be uh, the senior economist over there. And I think his economic ignorance was on display in the way he was whitewashing these numbers and trying to portray the trade deficit. As if it's a positive thing, because what Steve Leisman pointed out and he was you know, correct to point this out, he just doesn't understand the dynamics. But he pointed out that during times of economic expansions, at least technically what has been described as an expansion, right, when the economy is supposedly growing, that's when we have bigger trade deficits. And the only time that the trade deficits go down is when we have a recession. So he said that trade deficits are associated with good times, right? Uh, Growing deficits are associated with recoveries and shrinking deficits are associated with bad times, with recession. And therefore we shouldn't want Uh, a smaller trade deficit because that's like wanting recession and that we should be happy that the trade deficits are growing because that means that the economy is also growing. And he said that Trump can't have it both ways. He can't say he wants a growing economy, yet he also wants smaller trade deficits when larger trade deficits and a growing economy go hand in hand. I mean, according to Steve Leisman and his observation is correct it's his understanding that is not I mean basically what Steve Leisman is doing is let's say Steve Leisman was a doctor and of course if you know he you know he gave out a medical advice the same way he gives out economic advice all of his patients would die but basically what he's saying is that hey here's a guy that's a heroin addict and when he does heroin, he feels great and he has a good time. And we've noticed that when he goes into rehab and he starts stops taking heroin, all of a sudden he just starts having convulsions. I mean, he really doesn't look like he's enjoying himself. Therefore, the conclusion is that heroin is good because when he's taking heroin, he feels great. And when he stops taking heroin, he feels horrible. So my, my diagnosis is the heroin, it's the lack of heroin that's a problem. And we just have to make sure that he keeps taking heroin, and then he's going to always feel good, right? I mean, because the trade deficits are part of the phony expansions. They're part of the bubble. You see, if we had real uh, economic growth, then we wouldn't have rising trade deficits, we would have falling trade deficits. See, when uh, Steve Leisman describes it to the CNBC audience, he says, hey, when the economy is growing, we have more money and we buy more stuff. And so we buy more stuff that is made in other countries, right? And so... That's good. And when the economy is weak, when we don't have as much money, then we don't buy as much stuff. And then we have smaller trade deficits, right? It makes sense if you don't bother to think it out, if you don't really have an understanding of economics, because, you know, they have expansions in Germany, they have expansions in Japan, and they manage to have trade surpluses when their economies are booming. So if they can have trade surpluses in other countries during good times, then why can't we have them in America? In fact, In expansions during the past, there have been certainly periods of time where the U.S. economy was growing and our trade surpluses were growing. And so if we could have a growing economy and growing surpluses in the past, you know, why can't we have it now? And the reason is because we don't have real economic growth. What we have are bubbles. And so what Steve Leisman is observing is what happens during a bubble. Right? When the Federal Reserve creates phony economic expansion by injecting credit and cheap money into the economy, then we go out, consumers spend that money on imported products. And so the growing trade deficits are symptomatic of the problem, of the credit bubble, of the fact that we are living beyond our means and spending too much money And it is being enabled by monetary policy. You see, if we really had economic growth, we would have more output associated with that economic growth. We would be producing more stuff and then we would be consuming the stuff that our growing economy produced. In fact, if the economy were really growing, we would produce extra stuff. We would produce more stuff than we actually needed, and we could export the difference. That's what a growing economy actually does. But when your economy is not really growing, when all you're doing is growing your money supply, then you have trade deficits because you can't produce enough stuff. And so you rely on foreign economies that are actually growing to supply you with the merchandise that you need, and you run bigger and bigger deficits. Now, of course, when we have recessions, right, that's the market trying to correct the imbalances. So every time we've had a recession in a in, in recent past, you know, certainly through the Greenspan era, which now includes. Um, ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen and, and Powell, but even even predating Greenspan. But let's just start with Greenspan forward. All of these so-called recoveries or expansions have simply been bubbles, artificially created uh, by an infusion of cheap money uh, and bigger deficits and uh, lower interest rates. And when the air starts to come out of the bubble and the market tries to correct the imbalances, one of the imbalances that the markets are trying to correct are the trade deficits. The trade deficits are coming down during a recession, and that is a good thing. That is part of the healing process because in a recession, we are spending less and saving more, which is exactly what the economy needs. We had a shortage of savings and too much consumption, and the recession tries to right that economic ship. We have to start saving more so that we can invest more and produce more so we don't have to keep running these deficits. But what happens is every time the economy goes into recession – the Federal Reserve shoots it up with more monetary heroin. Exactly what Dr. Steve Leisman thinks the economy needs, right? That's why his heroin patients are never going to recover because every time they start to go into withdrawal, he's like, oh, the withdrawal is bad. Here, give him more heroin. So every time we go into recession, right, one of the things that happens is the trade deficits start to come down, and that is a good thing, but of course, Recessions are painful, just like rehab is painful. It, it feels much better to be high on heroin than to be strung out in rehab You know, while you're trying to detox. And, of course, the voters, they don't like detox. They don't want to go through a recession. And so there's all this political pressure. And, of course, usually when there's a recession, there's a bear market because part of the problem during the boom with cheap money is you inflate stock prices. And during the recession, you have a bear market. Stock prices are coming down. See, nobody likes that. Nobody wants to get poorer, even though deflating a stock market bubble is part of the cure. If your goal is a legitimate, healthy economy that grows based on production and not debt and consumption, then, you know, you're going to bring down asset prices. You're going to deflate all these bubbles. That means all the people that were betting on the bubble are going to lose money. But of course, you know, the politicians and all the central bankers, nobody wants to allow that to happen. So Steve leesman is totally drunk on the Kool-Aid and does not understand that the trade deficits are growing because we just had these tax cuts, right? A lot of Americans have more money to spend because of the tax cuts. Well, what does that mean? Well, they're going to buy more imported products because we don't produce the products ourselves. So to the extent that we have a little bit more money to spend thanks to the tax cuts, well, the trade deficits are going to go up. I said that at the time when we were cutting taxes that the trade deficits were going to grow because people were going to take their tax savings to Walmart and they were going to buy more stuff or they were going to take it to Amazon. I mean, one of the reasons that Amazon's stock Uh, just eclipsed a trillion-dollar market cap today. Now, only the second company after Apple – to have a trillion-dollar market cap. The main difference is that Apple has a lot more profits than Amazon. In fact, Amazon, I don't even think they still make a profit, but it's the anticipation of profits that has got investors so excited to bid up the share price to a trillion-dollar market cap. But one of the reasons that Amazon can sell so many products is because so much of what they're selling has been imported. If the only stuff that you could sell on Amazon was stuff that was made in America, uh, sales would collapse because there would be not... Nearly as much stuff for people to buy, and the prices would be much higher, so fewer people could afford it. In fact, these tax cuts are are the main reason that US corporate earnings are up. Right? People keep talking about, "Oh, US corporations have higher earnings." Not on a pre-tax basis. Their earnings are higher on a post-tax basis because their tax rates have just been dramatically reduced. And so obviously there's an earnings boost there, but that earnings boost happens once, right? We're not going to get tax cuts every year. So it's not like this is a permanent increase in the growth of corporate earnings, it's a one-time event. But, you know, the stock market wants to price it in like, oh, this is going to continue to happen. And, of course, what are companies doing with their tax cuts? They are using that money to buy back their own stock. So, you know, basically it's twofer, right? The tax cuts increase corporate earnings, which makes stocks go up. But then they take the tax cuts and they buy back their own stock which also makes stocks go up. But of course, in the long run, companies are ultimately overpaying for their own inflated stock prices, and investors are starting to value these tax cuts without even realizing that these tax cuts are all temporary. I mean, if you look at the political uh, writing, if you read that writing on the wall, you can see that there is a blue wave forming that is likely to wash over uh, Washington like a tidal wave by 2021. And if the Democrats get control of the White House and if the Democrats uh, have control of Congress, how long do you think those low corporate tax rates are going to remain in effect? I mean, one of the first things that they're going to do is jack up tax rates and they're going to be a lot higher than they were Uh, Before the Republicans cut them. In fact, look at just what happened in Massachusetts. You had another uh, far left socialist Democrat win. Ayanna Presley uh, is the woman's name, and she's now going to be the first uh, African American woman to be in Congress. For the state of Massachusetts, I didn't even realize that, but until I read the article, and she beat another uh, white guy who had been in Congress, I think for twenty years, ten-term, very left-wing guy. Yet Ayanna Presley managed to go to the left of somebody that was already far left, and of course she had the backing of Alexandria. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, right, the other uh, Democratic socialist who had the upset in New York. And again, she, uh, a woman of color, beat out a white guy who wasn't quite socialist enough uh, for the Democratic uh, electorate that, that that voted for her. And this is the trend that we have in the Democratic Party. The whole party is shifting to the left. And a lot of the Democrats who are now uh, in office in order to fend off uh, a, a a primary contest to their left they have to move left you see a lot of these districts now I mean they gerrymander them so much that the Democrats know they're not going to lose in the general election right there's there's no way a Republican is going to take some of these democratic seats so the only thing that's competitive is the primary and if you you know you leave your left open if you're not far enough to the left that some socialists can get in there and and, and out, you know, out promise you free stuff, then you're going to lose in a primary, right? Especially if you're a white guy. I mean, you better get way left because some African-American woman is going to come in and you're going to lose your cushy job. You know, you're going to lose in the primary. And so in order to prevent this from happening, you need to really go left first and make sure there's not room for somebody to squeeze by and, and beat you in the primary. So the whole Democratic Party is moving left. And so if we get a Democratic president in, in, in 2021, and I still think that that is what's going to happen, uh, look – We're going to have another recession and we're going to have another bear market. And the odds are that both are going to start before the next election. And what is the odds that Trump could be reelected if we're in a recession and in a bear market? Because the only thing that Trump's got going for him is to talk about how great the economy is and how high the stock market is. You take that away. What does he have left? You know, I was listening to a uh, press conference with the president today. And, you know, one of the false claims that he made, he said, look, I've accomplished more in the first two years of office than any president in history. Now, I don't know you know, where he's getting this. I mean, what exactly has he accomplished and how does that compare to what other presidents have accomplished? Now, I'll agree. Most modern presidents, to the extent that they accomplish stuff, they accomplish bad things. So most of what other presidents did in office was bad. I mean, I don't like accomplishments because we started from a perfect place. We started with limited government. And most of what presidents have accomplished was accomplishing more government. They accomplished growing government by having more legislation passed that made government bigger and restricted individual liberty. So from that perspective, I like a president who accomplished nothing because we started with maximum liberty and minimal government. And so what I want to accomplish is maintaining that, right? I don't want to eat away at our liberties in order to make government bigger. So to me, accomplishing very little is a positive thing. Now, of course, at this point, there's been so much damage From prior presidents, that I needed a president to accomplish things. But what I want to accomplish is to remove all the prior accomplishments. I want to start dismantling what other presidents did. We want to start repealing laws, repealing regulations, dismantling agencies and departments, undo all that stuff because all that stuff was bad. I want to restore the greatness. That was America. When Donald Trump talked about making America great again, if he actually wanted to do it, to restore our greatness means shrinking government and enabling the private sector to be great again by removing all of the burdens that have been placed on it and by restoring all the individual liberty that was lost because of generations of presidential accomplishments. But even if you want to just say, hey, it's not accomplishments, it's like, things that have been done, right, good or bad. I mean, has Trump actually done more, good or bad, than any other president? I mean, I doubt it. But one of the things that Trump claimed credit for, he said that he saved Social Security and Medicare. Now, I'm not making this up. He actually said, I saved Social Security and Medicare. The Democrats wanted to ruin it or get rid of it, and I saved it. I mean, first of all, what Democrat— Wants to get rid of Social Security or ruin Social Security, Medicare. I mean, that's all that. Those are their favorite government programs. I mean, they want to make them bigger. And I would not brag about saving these programs. We, we need to repeal them, dismantle them, reform them. I mean, they're broke. I mean, in fact, Social Security and Medicare are even less solvent today than they were when Trump was elected because the government is now deeper in debt, So obviously, it's going to be even more difficult to meet these obligations. In fact, not difficult. It's impossible. But how is it that Trump is able to claim with a straight face that he has already saved Social Security, Medicare? I mean, what has he done to save them? As far as I know, there has been no legislation at all with respect to Social Security, Medicare, which means they're both broke. They're both running out of money. Nothing has been done. There has been no attempt to reform Social Security and Medicare. In fact, the only thing that potentially Trump can brag about is he has resisted any push from within his own party to actually deal with the ticking time bombs of Social Security and Medicare. So he hasn't saved the programs. He's basically prevented them from being saved because the only way to save them for anybody is massive reform. I mean, if you don't do that, then they're going to be lost for everybody because there's going to be massive inflation because there's no way that we can pay these benefits. So I don't know what he's talking about, but why you would want to brag about saving something that can't be saved. All you're doing is resisting any meaningful reform because you don't want to touch the third rail of politics. I mean, do you really want to brag about just, you know, not wanting to uh, do anything that's good for the country because you don't want to anger any the constituents who would be upset if you threaten to somehow diminish their social security checks? I mean, is this the guy that's going to make America great again that says, I'm going to rise above politics? I'm going to drain the swamp. A guy that doesn't even want to talk about entitlement reform. That is the most important thing that we need a leader to do. That's why we need somebody to rise above politics, because nobody has been willing from either side to to take on these monstrosities. Nobody has wanted to risk stepping on the third rail of politics, and apparently, neither does Donald Trump. Of course, if the president did make such exaggerated claims and such obviously false claims, it would be a lot easier for the president to react with all of the other false allegations that are being hurled against him on a daily basis. I mean, look at that um, op-ed today in the New York Times, came out late this afternoon by some anonymous source, right? And apparently this is a high-up guy in the Trump administration. And the New York Times publishes his opinion piece, right, without revealing who he is, right? And the title of the piece is, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. So he's basically part of an organized resistance that is trying to save America from Trump, and if you read the the op-ed, basically what the guy is saying is Trump is immoral, he's basically crazed, he's power-mad, he's incompetent, you know, and the only thing standing between, you know, us and just, you know, complete chaos or is this resistance that's trying to save the economy, save the country, save our republic from Trump. But he has to stay anonymous because if he, you know, comes out and, and says who he is, well, Trump is gonna fire him. And so the resistance has to kind of, you know, stay within Trump's good graces. So you know, to basically pretend that they think Trump is great and then just quietly try to subvert what he's trying to do, to try to save the country from Trump, but without letting Trump know that they're on to him and that they believe that. You know, they need to undermine him because they know if Trump, if they let Trump know what their real agenda is, that they'd be fired. So they have to kind of walk a fine line in order to get the country through this very difficult period of the Trump administration until we can have a a real president, probably meaning, you know, a a guy that's part of the political establishment as opposed to Donald Trump. And that's why I wish he acted more like he wasn't part of the establishment and took on politically charged things like entitlement reform and didn't just, you know, try to be a consummate politician, but also uh, claim that you're going to drain the swamp. I mean, you can't drain it and fill it. It simultaneously. But this whole thing to me, I mean, looks ridiculous because first of all, if you read the the, uh, the article, the guy who wrote it, or maybe it's a it's a woman, I mean, we don't know, right? But whoever wrote it claims that uh, they want the Trump administration to succeed, right? They're, they're goal. They're not, I'm not, he says, or she says, whatever. I'm not, on the left, I'm not a left wing critic, so I'm i I'm, I'm a I'm a fellow Republican. I believe in you know the Republican principles. I just want to save the country from Trump, and so I want his administration to succeed. Well, if that's true, if there really is this organized Trump resistance, it has to be really quiet, right? Because you know they can't let Trump realize that. You know, they're trying to save the country from Trump and they're trying to subtly influence him so that he doesn't do all the crazy things that he would do if left to his own devices. Right. So if they're quietly trying to save the country from Trump and just kind of steer him subtly in the right direction. Right. Why would they write this op ed? I mean, the last thing you would want to do. Is a, you know, out the president, because this makes it even more difficult. I mean, if you want Trump to succeed, an op-ed like this obviously complicates that. And of course, now, if Trump didn't know that this resistance existed, well, now you just spill the beans. I mean, why would a legitimate member of an unknown resistance put the resistance on the front page of the of the New York Times? I mean, now all of a sudden Trump knows that there's a resistance to the extent that he believes that that this is actually true, right? Assuming that this is honest, right? Now Trump knows about something he didn't know about. Now he's going to be on his guard to look out for, you know, all of these, you know, double agents, all of these traitors in his midst, right? Well, he was oblivious before. Now he knows, right? So you wouldn't want to do that. So it makes no sense that this story would be written by somebody who wants the president to succeed. It would only be written by somebody who wants the president to fail, That's why you write an op-ed like this, because you want to point out that the president's incompetent and even the people who are surrounding him know he's incompetent and they're trying their best to save the country from Trump. So clearly this was written by somebody who wants uh, the president to fail. Yet within the article, he writes that he wants him to succeed, which has to be a lie. And so if the op-ed itself contains lies, then maybe the entire thing is a lie. And of course, why, though, is the New York Times even running a piece like this if they're not willing to divulge the source? I mean, who knows if this guy really is high up in the White House? Maybe he cleans the toilets in the White House. I I don't know who this guy is. I mean, but it doesn't make any sense that. Uh, somebody really high up who wanted the president to succeed, the last thing he would do would be pen an op-ed like this and send it to the New York Times. And of course, why the New York Times? Obviously, the New York Times is not the type of paper. You would send it to a right-wing paper to the extent that you could find one. You wouldn't send it to the New York Times. I mean, that's the last place you would want to send an op-ed if you were actually friendly to the president and really were on his side. You would not You would not take this uh, to the one paper that you know is going to have it out for the president. Write a very left-wing uh, type paper that you know is anti-Trump, that is not where you would want this article to be if you would even want the article to exist at all, which of course you would not. But the bottom line is it would be a lot easier for the president to fend off this kind of nonsense if he was more honest himself. Because it's hard to call other people liars right, and fake news when you're lying in perpetuating fake news yourself that is the problem but again all this and where i started talking about all of this is undermining the president's chances of being re-elected in 2020 it is going to make it that much more likely that we get a far left uh, socialist type democrat in the white house with a very sympathetic socialized Congress and even the congressmen who aren't socialists are going to have to vote socialist in order to preserve their, their place, in order to make sure that they don't get beat in a primary by someone to their left. I mean, it doesn't matter. They don't have to be middle of the road, right? They don't have to worry about the Republican challenging them. They have to worry about a challenge from within their own party. Because somebody is even further left and especially if you're white, if you're a white man and you are a Democrat in Congress, you are in trouble because, you know, one of the things that uh, the left is looking for now is they want female minorities. I mean, that is now what's, you know, in vogue uh, to show how progressive you are and how inclusive you are and how you don't discriminate, right, and how you treat everybody equal the way you prove uh, you know how tolerant you are and how inclusive you are and how you're not a bigot is you go out of your way to vote for a woman or uh, a minority woman and 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 so if you're just a white guy i mean you know you had better be you know Karl Marx i mean you better go way way left if you want any prayer uh, of uh, of holding onto your seat And this is a dangerous thing for the country because, you know, we're in this democracy, unfortunately. No, and I was watching these Facebook hearings today. And, you know, these things really rile me every time I see uh, people uh, testifying in front of Congress. And I and I watch these congressmen ask these questions and it makes me want to throw up. Uh, And, you know, and again, I wish I was there again. If you haven't seen. The way I talk to these guys, because I hate the way they show these people such respect and they don't deserve any of this respect. Uh, these congressmen are wrecking the country and yet they treat capitalists, they treat businessmen like they're the enemy, right? And somehow that the government is there to save us from free enterprise when it's the other way around, right? But go look, go watch Mr. Schiff goes to Washington, Mr. Schiff returns to Washington. In fact, I recently uh, re-upped Uh, both of those uh, testimonies when I went to Congress both times and I put it into one YouTube video. So make sure and check it out because nobody talks to these guys the way I talk to them. And um, that's the way they need to be talked to. Of course, that's why they're not going to have me testify again, uh, because they don't want to be spoken to uh, like that. Uh, they, 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 they want people to kiss their butts, which is what all these guys do. And of course, when people from Facebook and Twitter go up there, I mean, they are nervous, right? Because these guys have the power to regulate the hell out of them. Although I did hear a clip, uh, one thing that, that Mark Zuckerberg said and I thought it was it was very good. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad that he said it. And I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting it. And it was maybe out of character. I don't know. But he's partic- he specifically pointed out that to the extent that Congress passes some new regulation on the Internet, that a company like Facebook has plenty of money and plenty of resources and they would be able to comply with the regulations. No problem. But that the problem would be for the smaller companies, the startups, who would not have the resources to uh, be able to comply with the new rules and regulation, which I thought was a stand-up thing for Zuckerberg to say. Because obviously, whenever government comes up with new regulations, the winners are the established companies who can afford to comply. And, they not only, and the reason they win is because it limits their competition. It makes it harder for smaller companies to compete away their market because the smaller companies now have a higher obstacle to overcome. There's another barrier to entry, and that barrier has been imposed by government. So it was maybe out of character to see the representative of one of these big companies that would benefit from the regulation saying, hey, hold off, because if you put this regulation in, it's going to actually benefit my company at the expense of all these smaller companies that might be trying to grab some of our market share. Let me just change gears though a little bit. And I want to talk about this article that I read over on the national public radio website. And it was about the icon school of medicine at Mount Sinai in New York city. And it was about uh, the fact that the school decided that they were going to do away with their honor society for their uh, med school graduates. And the way the honor society would work is the top 25% of the graduating class would be considered for the honor society, right? And in order to be the top 25%, you had to have the top grade point average, right? And maybe there was some testing involved, uh, but it was mostly your grade point average. And so the top 25%, Percent of the class was considered, but then there were some other qualifications for leadership and 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 things like that. Where it just just get being in the top twenty five didn't guarantee you that you made it to the honor society. You had to be judged on some other characteristics, professionalism, and things like that. And I think maybe the top nineteen percent or so uh, made it to the honor society. And of course, the good thing about being in the honor society is that when you're trying to apply for residency programs, if you, if you made it into the honor society, that just shows that you were a standout student. You're at the top of your class and it probably made it easier for you to get accepted into a better program. And the, um, Icahn school of medicine decided that they were going to do away with the society completely. And so therefore nobody has the ability, uh, to claim that they were, Uh, a member of the Honor Society. And so now some people won't be able to have that on their resume when they're trying to get these, uh, these residencies. But the reason that they decided to do away with it is because of the allegations that it was racist. Now, why was it racist? Well, because the representation of blacks in the Honor Society was low, And I'm not sure exactly how low it was because it didn't say, but obviously it was lower than maybe the percentage of black students. Obviously, you know, if let's say 30% of the med students or 20% maybe of the, the students are black, uh, clearly, you know, you're going to have not as many blacks that are in the honor society. Because if they're only a small minority, but my guess is that let's say that blacks represented 20% of the class. I mean, if that, whatever, but I'm just making a number up, but let's say they were 20% of the the class, the graduating class, but they were only 10% of the honor society, then the conclusion is, well, this is racist because why are, you know, why isn't it the same? I mean, if blacks are 20% of the class, then why aren't they 20% of the honor society? And the fact that they're not, well, that must mean that there's racism. And so they're going to, you know, get rid of the entire society. And again, this is looking at this concept of a disparate impact, meaning that they're going to rule anything racist that, concludes with blacks being disproportionately represented relative to their numbers, right? And that automatically means that there's racism. When the reality is, all they're doing is taking the top 25% of these students based on their grades, and those are the ones that are being considered for the honor society. And the article points out that that is the barrier. That it's not the, the other qualities that are that are keeping blacks out of the uh, honor society. It's not the leadership or the professionalism. They're just not getting the grades. They're not making the grades. And so they're being disqualified from consideration because they're not making the cut. Now, is that because of racism? I mean, are all the teachers in New York a bunch of racists? Are they just giving out lower grades to students because they're black? I mean, I doubt that. I mean, I'm sure the, the grades in medical school. Or, you know, you did you, you did it correctly and you got a good grade. You did it incorrectly, you got a lower grade. I mean, if blacks are scoring lower, it's because they're not doing as well. And if they're not doing as well, well, they shouldn't be in the honor society. After all, what is the honor society supposed to be about? It's about the people who did the best. And if the people who did the best, if there weren't that many black students who qualify, well, then that's the way it is. But here is the problem that nobody wants to admit. One of the reasons that this is happening. And probably the main reason or the only reason is because Mount Sinai Medical School probably admitted applicants who were black and they lowered the bar, right? Affirmative action. They probably went out of their way to get more diversity among their student body. And so they lowered the bar for black applicants. And so probably the typical black student did not do as well in college, did not have as good grades, did not do as well on his MCATs as the typical white student. You know, Because they wanted to get more blacks in, they made it easier for blacks to be admitted. Now, if that is the case, should they be surprised that they don't do as well on average? I mean, clearly, there's going to be some black students that would have got in without affirmative action, and they could be equally represented in the honor society. But if you lowered your standards in order to get more blacks in your school, then clearly they're not going to be at the top of the class. I mean, just bottom line. I mean, so what do they want uh, uh, Mount Sinai to do? I mean, should we just abolish all grades if Blacks are getting lower grades than whites. Then we just have to abolish grades, so that you know we don't want to give out any grades because if we give higher grades to white students and black students, then it's because of racism. I mean, why not just eliminate all the classes? Why not just give everybody a diploma, right? Then no one, no one, could be accused of of racism if we just give out diplomas to everybody. Of course, you know none of these graduates would be able to practice medicine, but at least there wouldn't be any any uh, any racism, any discrimination. You know, when I went to Berkeley, and this is years and years ago. I remember that a lot of the freshmen who were admitted to Berkeley, particularly minorities, and of course, not only minorities. I mean, there were some white people too, but it was disproportionate, right? Blacks, Hispanics, but freshman year, they had to take remedial math and remedial English. You know, why did they have to take remedial math and remedial English? Because they they were lousy at math and English. I mean, they didn't even have high school proficiency and they had to take these remedial classes as freshmen. It's like, well, why are they at Cal? I mean, if, if, if they didn't even learn this stuff in high school and now they're in remedial courses in college, why did they get admitted to Berkeley? They got admitted to Berkeley because they were minorities and because of affirmative action. And so they allowed these kids to come to Berkeley who clearly were not qualified to be there. And of course, were they doing them any favors? I don't think so. Probably most of them probably dropped out somewhere along the way because they never should have been, you know, admitted into the institution in the first place, just based on, you know, the the desire to have a more diversified uh, 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 student body. The idea is to have students that are there that are academically capable of handling uh, the, the, the rigorous environment. And, you know, Letting people in who are not prepared does them a disservice. But I can tell you another thing that this did, because when you were on campus, and I remember having these feelings, because I don't think I'm I'm racist at all, right? But I remember if, you know, you met somebody, right? If you were in Berkeley and you met somebody, you know, and there's somebody who happened to be black, the first thing that you would assume. Right. Is that, well, this guy is probably, you know, got in because he was black. And so, you know, maybe he's really not qualified to be here. Maybe he shouldn't be here. And the only reason he's here is because he's black and a lesser qualified candidate got, you know, is now at some other school. That's not as good uh, because he was white and they put a black person in instead. Right. That's what you would think. Now, that's not racist. Right. I don't think I don't think people who are black are less competent, but I know That Berkeley goes out of their way or went out of their way to allow blacks who are less competent to get in. In fact, even when you applied, I remember they would say, you know, they didn't want minorities to be discouraged. So they would show what the average GPA was and what the average uh, SAT score was. But then they would write, say, but if you're black... Don't be discouraged because this is what the average uh, GPA is and the average uh, SAT score is for blacks who are admitted. And it was way lower. I mean, there's no way uh, a white applicant would even have a prayer of getting in uh, with the type of GPA and SAT scores that blacks had and, and, and were getting into Berkeley. So they advertised this because they wanted the blacks to apply, even though they had low GPAs and, and bad SATs. They wanted them to know that you're going to get in uh, because you're black. So it wasn't like this was a secret. Everybody knew this. And so obviously, if you, know, you see a black kid on campus and you know that this is taking place, well, you're going to assume rightfully that this guy is here, You know, not because he's qualified, but because he's black. Now, is that because you're racist? No, it's just because you understand uh, the way things are. Now, obviously, if you get to know somebody more and you can maybe judge whether this guy is, you know, actually, you know, sharp and competent and maybe he would have got in anyway. Right. He didn't just get in because he was black. But you don't know that. I mean, your your initial impression, knowing that the standards are so much lower is you're just going to assume that this guy got in because of the lower standards, even if it's not the case, that's not being racist. See, if, Berkeley wasn't going out of its way to do that. If Berkeley was treating everybody the same, if it didn't matter what race you were, white or black, right, if they just looked colorblind at the applicants and everybody knew that, then you would never assume that. You would never assume that somebody who was black was less competent than somebody who was white. There would be no reason to assume that if all the standards were equal. It's only when you know they're lowering the bar for the black applicants that people start to question their competency just based on their skin color because we know that that's how Berkeley is allowing people to be admitted. And I always thought to myself, you know, if I were a black guy and I could get in on my merits, I would would really be pissed off at this whole system because I would know that people would be looking at me and assuming that I'm not qualified to be there, I didn't have the grades, I'm not smart enough, that I only got in because of the special privilege because I was black. And to the extent that people treat blacks differently on campus, it's not because they're racist, it's because of that um, assumption that is being created by the government and their affirmative action program. So I would not be upset at other white students who just, you know, assumed that I only got in because I was black, I would understand them making that assumption. I would be upset at the university for allowing lower uh, uh, qualified blacks to get in and then, and then giving me a bad reputation. Right? What good does that do? And if we are telling our young black children, hey, you don't have to be as good as your white counterparts. You don't have to score as high. Uh, on your test scores, you don't have to get as good grades. What are we telling them? We're saying, "Hey, you're not equal, right? You're going to permanently need a handout. Uh, you're and, and and you're just basically setting them up for failure. You have to. You have to." set people up to strive to be the best they can be. Don't tell them right off the bat, we're going to give you a handicap because we know you're not as good. And so we're going to make it easier for you to do this. But that's what happens. And so now all of a sudden, black kids, well, I don't have to try as hard because I know I'm going to get this handicap. I know I'm going to I'm going to have an easier time. And so we set them up for failure early on. Society tells them you're not as good. You have to have special treatment because you can't make it on your own. And all of this, undermines uh, successes that I think blacks otherwise would enjoy but for all the interference right this is how all these government programs all this civil rights stuff has backfired we have more racism that is cultivated by these laws I've talked many times about how employers now are you know are reluctant to hire. Anybody who's protected, uh, you know, by these all these rules, because they're afraid of being sued, they're afraid of all sorts of legal ramifications, and this is not because they're racists; it's because they are acting logically based on the conditions that the government has created. I want to finish up the podcast talking a little bit about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies because we have another pretty big sell-off going on starting earlier today. Bitcoin has started to recover. I believe the recovery was sparked, as I mentioned uh, on a prior podcast, by that very slanted infomercial that CNBC ran and called a documentary in favor of Bitcoin. And I think there was a lot of buying leading up. Uh, to that puff piece. And as a result of that uh, that special, I think there was more buying from people who saw it and, and got convinced to buy. And now we're getting uh, the sell-off uh, that resulted. But the catalyst today, I think was an announcement early this morning from Goldman Sachs. And apparently Goldman Sachs had let the markets know that it was considering opening up a trading desk to trade Bitcoin and maybe other cryptocurrencies. And, of course, the prospect of Goldman Sachs traders getting into the market uh, was a positive for the whole sector because it kind of validated the legitimacy because you got the big boys, Goldman Sachs. They're going to start trading it just like they trade currencies or or stocks or other other financial assets. And, of course, if Goldman was in there, well, maybe there would be more liquidity. There would be more Buying, right. And, and so this was in the markets as a potential positive. And now the rug got pulled out from under the markets today when Goldman Sachs basically said, look, after looking into it, we decided that we don't want any part of it or we don't want to get involved in in trading. Now, they did throw the crypto crowd a bone by leaving open the prospect that they're still going to be doing some work with cryptocurrencies in that they are looking into maybe offering some kind of custodial arrangements where they would hold custody of cryptocurrencies for institutional clients who wanted to own them but wanted to do it in a more secure environment. I mean, that's something that gold money is already doing. They're offering this cold storage and uh, storage for institutions who you know, want to buy Bitcoin. You know, I mean, hey, if you want to buy it, we'll find a safe place to store it. It's not that we're recommending that you go out and do it, but if you're going to do it anyway – Well, you might as well, you know, store your Bitcoin in a place where it's less likely to get stolen. Although at the end of the day, I don't think it matters whether, you know, it's stolen or not. I mean, if you hold on to it long enough, it's not going to have any value. But clearly, I mean, you still have the opportunity to sell it and you don't want to have that opportunity stolen from you. But once this news came out, Bitcoin prices started to sink. We're back below Uh, 7,000. As I am recording this, we're trading in the 6,900s. But once again, uh, Bitcoin is not the real story. It's all the altcoins uh, that are losing even more value. In fact, as I'm talking right now, Bitcoin is now at 55% market dominance. And this is the highest it's been. Remember, a few months ago when it was uh, under forty percent of the market. My prediction that on this move down, Bitcoin was going to get to between fifty and sixty percent of the market, and we were in the thirties at the time that I made that forecast. And you know, obviously, it happened because we're at fifty-five right now, and I still think we're going higher. So as 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 much value as Bitcoin is losing, uh, all the altcoins, uh, Ethereum is really the weakest one of the bunch. I mean, it's down about fourteen percent right now. It's at two hundred and forty-five. Uh, dollars a coin. I mean, but if you look at the chart, I mean, it really looks horrific. And a lot of these uh, currencies are down over 10% today, uh, some of them between 15 and 20%. And, you know, clearly Bitcoin, though, is still well above that 5,800 or so support level, which I still believe is going to be cracked. You know, this last uh, rally created a lot of optimism on Bitcoin. And, you know, I looked at the, uh, the debate I did. Uh, at reason, and now that thing is up to about 210,000 uh, views. So it's getting a lot of traction. I mean, I obviously have extra views. I put the, I posted the uh, the debate on my YouTube channel, but the reason version has uh, the most uh, most views. But again, if you read the comments, 95% of them are basically Peter Schiff's an idiot. I mean, or some variation of idiot, you know, I'm a turd, uh, I'm a nut, I'm an old fogey, I don't get it. I mean, everybody that's watching it, which again, leads me to believe that the only people who are watching the video are people who already own Bitcoin and believe in it. Right. You're not getting people who are just interested in Bitcoin and they're trying to decide, you know, whether or not they want to buy it or not. And now they're watching the video, because if that were the case then you know, you might expect maybe half of them would think, hey, Peter makes some good points. You know, maybe he's right. You know, you would expect to have more people on my side if people were objectively you know, listening to this debate. But they're not the only people who are listening to this debate are people who are in Bitcoin or the only people who are commenting on it. If Maybe, you know, people who are objective don't bother to leave comments. And that's true. I mentioned that before, that maybe the people in Bitcoin feel compelled uh, to say something bad about me because they want to help promote Bitcoin. And so if anybody happens to watch the video and reads the comments, they think maybe if all the comments are about what an idiot I am, uh, that people will think that uh, Bitcoin is good. But I mentioned this before, but go... On Google Trends, go Google Trends and type in Bitcoin and you will see uh, where uh, Bitcoin is in the search trends. And the peak, right, the most searches uh, when the index hit 100 percent was in December of last year. And right, that's when Bitcoin got up to around 20,000. If you look at where it is now, it's a seven on a scale of zero to 100. It's a seven. Now a seven is very low. I mean, I mean it's no higher than it was a year ago. In fact, it was higher than a seven. You can look at periods of time uh, in the past, you know, five years. Right, go back, you know, over the last five years on a chart, and you'll see that it was, you know, it even got up to sixteen uh, in May of two thousand and seventeen, and you know, I mean, it was four in 2016. But if you go back to 2013, that search chart got up to a 13 in December of 2013. It was at a 12 in February of 2014. So more people were searching the term Bitcoin in 2013. During periods of 2013 and 2010, you had more active searches for Bitcoin than you do now. Which would seem crazy if you look at the relative market cap. Because the market cap is much higher today than it was uh, back in 2013. Not just for Bitcoin, but for all the altcoins. You know, we almost have 2,000 now uh, cryptocurrencies. If you go to coin market cap, it'll tell you how many it's tracking. And right now, the number is 1,916. So the number of coins keeps growing. The market cap now is just under 219,000. Remember, at its peak it was uh, about 800, I mean, 800 billion. Right now it's about 219 billion. Uh, But the number of coins continues to grow. But if you look at the market cap today and compare it to the search volume, I mean, it's ridiculous because in order to maintain this market cap, in order to maintain the buying, you need a lot more people. You need a lot more people to drive the market higher now than you did four or five years ago when you know, the prices were much lower and it didn't take as much money to move the needle. Now you need a lot of people. You need all sorts of new buyers coming into the market in order to achieve any kind of gains when you're already working with a number this large. Yet it's not happening. We are not seeing the increased popularity, at least according to Google, according to search engines. You don't see this huge influx of new people who are researching Bitcoin and if all bunch of new people aren't researching Bitcoin where is the new buying going to come from I think the only buying is going to come from people who already own so people who already believe in Bitcoin are going to have to buy more but chances are a lot of these people are already all in how much more can they buy you know, now they can probably buy a little more, but they can't buy the same type of quantity that they bought when it was really cheap, right? If people bought bitcoins when they were ten dollars, a hundred dollars, even a thousand dollars. They can't buy as many now, right, as they could then because the price is so much higher. So you need all these new people coming in, and just looking at this uh, a Google chart, they're not getting that. So the market is going to have to implode and to me the trading action looks very negative negative. and every t- any time there's even the slightest bit of uptick you get all kinds of excitement all kinds of enthusiasm this is it 20,000 50,000 here we come this is exactly how bear markets uh, act people are are always excited uh, at, at you know they 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 fall a slope of hope oh by the way too I forgot to mention this, and I don't want people to think, hey, I'm ignoring this. Hey, I'm talking about Bitcoin going down, and I'm ignoring gold stocks going down. Gold stocks got clobbered over the last couple of days, even though the price of gold was only off by about $1 to $2. Right? Gold was off about 6 bucks yesterday, and it gained about 5 bucks back today. Very small drop. Yet yesterday, gold stocks were down about 5%. Today, they're down another couple of percent. You get a 7% move down in gold stocks when they're already low on a $2 move in the price of gold. There is massive pessimism right now in the gold market. It's reflected in the gold stocks. People don't think gold is going to hang out around $1,200 because it's barely below $1,200. I think it's like $1,197. But people expect the price to collapse. It hasn't collapsed yet, but everybody expects it. And so they are pricing this collapse into gold stocks. I don't think it's going to happen. I doubt we're going to stay below 1200 much longer. Meanwhile, one of the reasons that gold stocks are so vulnerable down here is because gold companies can't make any money mining gold at $1,200 an ounce, which is another reason you know the price is unsustainable at this level because there won't be any supply. We know there's demand for gold. Demand is always there, not just from investors or central banks, but from industry, from jewelry companies. There needs to be gold. Gold has to be produced. And if... The price is lower than the cost of production. There's not going to be any gold. And then where is it going to come from? And obviously, if gold isn't being produced, the only way to get gold is to convince somebody who's hoarding it to sell it. And believe me, most of the people who have been smart enough to buy gold and who are holding on to it are not going to sell it unless the price goes much higher. And the only way uh, that we're going to get more gold is for the price to go much higher because that's the only way we're going to mine it. In fact, if you look at a lot of these mining companies, they have not been investing in in exploration and development. They're not bringing on new capacity. And so when gold really starts to move, there's not going to be a bunch of supply coming out of the market to stop it, and the prices are just going to go ballistic. So, you know, contrary to the mood that I'm seeing in cryptocurrencies, the cryptocurrency guys are completely enthusiastic they're not worried they're strong in their conviction they're buying all the dips and hodling and they're not worried at all you have the exact opposite emotion in gold and gold stocks it's nothing but fear it's nothing but despair and pessimism there is no hope that's how you make a bottom bottoms are made with fear and despair they're not made on hope and excitement which is what we still see in the cryptocurrency market (music)